The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, <clears throat> good evening, everyone. And um, is the volume loud enough here? Great. So, uh, I'm happy to continue with a series of talks I'm giving on mindfulness practice. And specifically, the mindfulness practice as it's taught in the discourse, the teaching uh, scripture attributed to the Buddha, called, uh, usually called the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. And one of the angles that I've been using for these uh, talks is to refer to the, uh, this text as presenting a journey, that mindfulness practice is a journey that we undertake. And in a variety of different ways in this text, uh, there's kind of a, a movement that goes on from um, a, along a path, a movement along a um, unfolding, a deepening of practice. And uh, that sense of deepening uh, is presented in a variety of different ways as the text goes along. And it isn't like it's one path or one kind of linear deepening. Uh, and as a journey, you're not really going anywhere, uh, like physically. Uh, and I, I somehow I think about it like someone who is um, a swimmer, like an athlete who sw- sw- swims as their sport. And uh, they might swim in the same pool for years, back and forth and back and forth. And it's a journey for that swimmer. It's a journey of learning their body, using their body, developing their concentration, their attention, refining. And, and swimming is a kind of thing where it gets very, very refined. The subtle shifts and changes in the movements of the arm to make it just as efficient as possible. And some of it, just slowly, the body kind of learns how to do by itself, slowly over time. And so it's a journey for the swimmer to perfect the swimming, to excel in the swimming, to develop themselves as a swimmer, even though it's not a journey that goes anywhere, just back and forth in the pool. So for people who do meditation, we're just sitting on our cushion. So it's not much of a journey that way. But it is an inner journey. We're the same, like a swimmer, we're uh, repeating the same thing over and over again. Sitting, st- sitting still, focusing on the breathing, on the body, bringing mindfulness to our experience. And slowly, sometimes imperceptibly, uh, we're refining the body, refining the mind, refining our emotional life, our ability to pay attention, our concentration. And it gets more and more refined or more and more developed and acute and supportive of this process of taking this journey deeper and deeper. But it takes the repetition. It's like a swimmer. A swimmer has to do it over and over and over again. There's um, this journey in mindfulness meditation is one of repetition over and over and over again. And this sutta, this discourse that presents this, uh, is kind of coming at this journey from many different angles. Just like for a swimmer, um, uh, some days they're focusing on their kick, other days they're focusing on the stroke, other days they're focusing on, you know, I don't know everything about swimming, but different things about swimming. Uh, and then slowly, the overall, through the taking care of these different elements of, of swimming, uh, the overall, the swimming journey gets deeper and deeper. So this text is kind of coming at different angles. 
the four big ones, it focuses on the body, and within that, the cultivating a variety of different things. It focuses on uh, the feelings, it focuses on mind states, and the topic for today, it focuses on some of the deeper truths, some of the deeper insights that we can have um, as we do this mindfulness practice. And um, <clears throat> and uh, w- the beginning of this long, now long series of, of uh, talks, uh, I talked about the refrain. Uh, there's a particular passage that gets repeated, something like 13 times in the text over and over again. And for years, I ignored that refrain because repetition is boring. And repetition in my, in my young juvenile mind that I had for way too long was um, uh, is uh, kind of um, not really where the real emphasis is, or that's kind of like it's a literary kind of embellishment or something. So, whatever reason, I kind of just kind of glossed over it. Turns out, it's maybe the most important part of the whole text, and it's being repeated over and over again because the the composers of the text said this is important. <laughs> And uh, it was an oral tradition, so people would memorize a text and recite it. And when you recite a song or a poem or a scripture over and over again and has a refrain, that sometimes really sticks and goes in deeper. And, um, and the refrain is a journey. And it's a journey towards from um, first just kind of being present for our experience internally and externally, our body, our feelings, our mind states. And, it's, and then discovering, noticing how the, uh, the impermanence of this, how the experience that we have comes and goes, arises and passes, and the inconstancy of our experience. And there's a paradox in mindfulness practice that we're cultivating a lot of stability and steadiness. We're sitting here, being present, the mind's becoming more and more steady, in a, kind of, in a certain kind of wonderfully soft and nice way. Mind becomes less and less moving. It's not moving after its thoughts, not being swept away in the thought streams. And as it gets more stable and still, the inner life, then it becomes clear that the experience that we're observing from that stillness is constantly shifting and changing. It's inconstant, coming and going. And so this refrain talks about first establishing attention internally, externally, then seeing how things are inconstant, coming and going. And that supports the mind to not latch on to any of it. And now to, uh, when you see a lot of the inconstancy of our experience, it's people are less inclined to add a lot of labels, interpretations on that experience, concepts on it. It's easier, the more likely just let it be, leave it alone. Leave the experience to come and go, just let it come and go, like being in a stream, just let it wash by you. Many years ago I met a woman who um, was backpacking, I think, somewhere. She met this other backpacker. They, they shared a camp for the night or something. And uh, that uh, uh, this guy that she met had been at the Zen monastery. And she didn't know anything about meditation or Zen. And, um, and so I guess that evening he taught her about how to do Zen meditation in his way. And he said, it's like sitting on a rock in a stream and just letting all the river just flow right by. So that was the image she had for meditation, and that worked great for her. Just let the stream just you know wash wash by. Everything washes by. Everything you everything but everything but awareness is the stream. The awareness is still. So uh, that you're so so then seeing the arising and passing, not making anything of it, uh, the mind gets simpler and simpler, 
and very still and equanimous and just, just sees things in the simplicity of how they are. And then with that simplicity and stillness, then at some point they can let go. So, but the, the, the path, that path goes through a stage of seeing things arise and pass, seeing things coming and going. It's very important and uh, emphasizing this because what we're, where we're going to go today. So um, the fourth foundation is, uh, is the, in the ancient language is Dhamma, foundations of the Dharma. And um, there's many interpretations and guesses at what this word means here because the word Dharma has 54 different meanings. And the which one applies here is anybody's guess. And um, so I'll maybe come back to my, inter- my, my guess later. And, um, but it can mean something like truths, doctrine, teachings. It can uh, refer to qualities of mind, aspects of mind, factors of mind, objects of mind. Um, it can also sometimes interpret in the, in the dictionaries, it means nature. That's pretty broad. So all kinds of things. It could also mean behavior. So, so anyway, so th- this last foundation is Dharma. And so usually what people do is they see what's being talked about in the, in the section and then they come up with the... This, this means that Dharma must mean this in this section. Anyway. And so there's five things in this section of Dharma and they can be divided into two different categories of exercises. Learning to focus and pay, be mindful of the things that keep us in bondage, keep us stuck, keep us suffering. And the other is to, uh, uh, that's three of them, and the other two have to do with the things that are uh, explicitly liberating. Uh, the seven factors of awakening, these beautiful qualities of, of mind that get awakened and strengthened as we do mindfulness practice. It makes this, this journey of mindfulness quite spectacular to have these beautiful qualities arise. And I'll talk about them in a few weeks. And then uh, the, four, uh, the Four Noble Truths, a very important teaching in Buddhism. So the Four Noble Truths and Seven Factors of Awakening about explicitly about liberation. The other three exercises are about what keeps us in bondage. The first one of them are the, is the Five Hindrances. Very famous uh, list for uh, mindfulness practitioners, Vipassana students. Everybody who practices Vipassana should memorize what these five are and think that part of the task, that part of the journey is um, to become an expert on these five hindrances. To study them, get to know them, and get to know them how it works in your own mind. Um, There is a... Am I allowed to go off on a tangent? (laughs) There's a Zen story. Of, um, so there's uh, the Buddha. And then uh, kind of in, the, in Mahayana Buddhism, in the hierarchy of great enlightened beings, kind of right up there near the Buddha is this bodhisattva, kind of a celestial sage called Manjushri, the bodhisattva of great wisdom. Supposed to have, you know, wisdom of emptiness, wisdom of you know, great wisdom. So one day Manjushri came to see the Buddha and lo and behold there was a woman, a woman of all people, sitting in the seat of honor next to the Buddha. Now, that's kind of the seat for Manjushri. 
So Manjushri goes to the Buddha and says, what's going on here? That a woman is sitting in the place of honor. She's meditating. And so the Buddha says to Manjushri, why don't you ask her? And so Manjushri tries to get her to come out of her meditation state, out of her samadhi. And, um, and so um, he tries everything he can. He tries psychic powers. He lifts her up in the air with her psychic powers. He does, you know, all kinds of mumbo-jumbo to try to get her, uses to get her attention. And she, he can't snap her out of her meditation state. And uh, so the, he says to the Buddha, what's going on here? And the Buddha said, uh, no, uh, not even a hundred thousand Manjushris could manage to get this woman out of her samadhi. The only uh, person who can get th- uh, this woman out of her samadhi is way down deep in the underworld, deep in the world, down below the ground, deep, far, far deep down. There's another bodhisattva, a great being of enlightenment, um, called Wisdom About Delusion. And so then up out of the ground comes this other bodhisattva, this wonderful woman called Wisdom About Delusion. Comes and stands in front of the woman and snaps her fingers just once. And the woman comes out of her meditation. Something that Manjushri couldn't do. So that's the end of the story. <laughs> so it's a, what it is, it's kind of a koan. It's a teaching story. And the, and the question is, why is it that the greatest, wisest disciple of the Buddha could have no influence, couldn't, have, couldn't uh, get the attention of this woman who was sitting there and the, meditating? And why is it the, the, the being that was represented by, it was called a wisdom about delusion, why could she wake up the woman? So that's the interesting question. Some people think that wisdom is about knowing great, wonderful, perfect spiritual things. But there's a long history in Buddhism that re- real wisdom is, is to have wisdom about how we get caught. Wisdom about delusion. And th- that's what's portable. That's what's useful. That's what's ap- applicable in so many different circumstances. And that's, that's what gets us free. So it isn't so much about studying emptiness and studying great, you know, powerful wonderful cosmic consciousness kind of spiritual states, but getting really wise about how we get caught. And so these five hindrances are considered kind of, uh, by the tradition at least, some of the things that meditators in particular really need to understand if they want to have wisdom about delusion, wisdom about how not to get caught. And these five are actually seven, because two two of them are paired. So it's... um, Uh, sensual desire, ill will, sometimes usually in English we say aversion, and then the third one is this pair um, of, um, uh, I think of it as um, resistance and lethargy, or stupor and lethargy. That's probably closer to the original, stupor and lethargy. And then uh, the next pair is restlessness and regret. And the last one is doubt. So these five are things, forces in the mind, concerns of the mind that can pop up quite strongly uh, so we get preoccupied by them and we can't stay on track with our swimming. We can't stay on track you know, with our mindfulness, staying present. We get veer off and go off in other directions. 
And so we have to really understand how they do their trick and how we get pulled into them and get hooked into them and how to become free of them. And, and uh, so a big part of mindfulness practice meditation is to learn to recognize these, work with them, learn how to be free with them. And there's a lot of different strategies for this. Uh, one of the, the preeminent one is just learn to really recognize them when they arise. And that's why studying them, get to know them really well, uh, uh, gives you a lot of choice and power over them because then you're less likely to wander off into them. Um, when, they're, when they're present, not only do they preoccupy us, they say it's kind of like having um, seeing through colored glasses or seeing in ways that you can't really see clearly. They hinder clarity. They hinder concentration. They hinder wisdom. They say that, um, they, the Buddha said that uh, when there's a lot of sensual desire, desire for sensual pleasure, craving, addiction of all kinds, that um, it's like having uh, uh, water upon a pond where they, someone has thrown in red dye. And so everything you see is red. And you know, it's so like when you fall in love with someone, everything is about the person, about the per- person is perfect until you get a divorce. And, <laughs> and then everything is imperfect. And, um, and so then um, ill will, aversion, hostility, is like the water, uh, uh, water that's uh, boiling. And when the water is boiling, you can't see your reflection in the water. Uh, uh, this uh, stupor and lethargy is uh, like having um, mud. Isn't that what mud is? Not right? Do I have it right? Or algae. What is it? Is it algae for the algae for that one? Okay. So algae. It's like if the pond is full of algae. It's hard to make your way through it. It's all kind of you know thick. And then uh, restless and uh, regret is uh, the top of the pond is uh, windswept, and so it's all churned up. And also you can't see your reflection. Can't see through. And I guess it's doubt that it's uh, like mud. And it really, uh, you know, gets us stuck. Maybe because doubt gets us stuck so much, like quicksand or something. Um, that we get pulled in. And um, so these are the forces. Um, so the, the instructions are to notice these things. And uh, so I'll read you what the, specifically what the instruction is in relationship to... It does the same thing for each one. Oh, I printed out the wrong one. The wrong page. But I can read from here. I wanted to do two different interpretations for how this is. Uh, This famous passage for how to do this. And one is literal, which is the one I was going to have, which I'll try to do from memory. And then there's one that's, uh, the most common one is interpretive, uh, for based on the Pali. And I'll say that, I'll explain a little bit between these two things. I think it's, remember I said the refrain emphasizes seeing the arising and passing, the impermanence of things? So the two different interpretations of, or translations of this uh, instructions for how to relate to the hindrances, one, the literal one, I believe, emphasizes seeing the impermanence of the hindrances as they come and go. The interpretive translation says, notice the conditions that uh, uh, cause them to arise and the conditions that cause them to go away. So develop understanding about the causality and conditionality of them. Both of them are very important and very effective. Uh, getting wise about the conditions that bring them out is one very important way not to be caught by them. And be wise about what makes them go away uh, is, a, is a powerful way not to be so under their sway. 
But uh, I think of those as preliminary. That ability to see the conditions and the conditionality, how they come into be and how they go away, is, um, is preliminary to coming to the stage of very deep, settled, focused attention in the middle of the stream and let everything go by and not thinking so much about it, not being so involved in why it's there or how it's there. And just see it as impermanent phenomena, impersonal, impermanent uh, uh, movements of the mind. It's very common for people when they have uh, uh, undesired mental activity. You know, so a few of us occasionally will have do things in our mind which we're not particularly proud of or happy for or, or things which are maybe um, painful to think or do or attitudes, all kinds of things. And uh, people can have a lot of shame about that. They can be very upset about it. But one of the strong characteristics about these kind of mental foibles that occasionally arise in human minds is uh, people take them personally. It's, it's, it reflects badly on me. I'm a bad person. I shouldn't be this way. And I hope no one notices and all that. But the ability to sit, uh, to cultivate, to keep practicing and practicing and practicing uh, keep swimming in the in the Dharma, keep swimming in the mindfulness until you're able to watch and just watch all this stuff just go by. Uh, the stream go by, stream of the hindrances, thoughts, ideas, even if they're undesirable, but don't identify with them. Don't take them personally. Don't do anything with them like, oh, this reflects badly on me, I shouldn't be this way, I have to get therapy, I have to meditate, but I am meditating. And, um, you know, so um, the idea is to uh, just be really simple and just see it, just be with it. And at some point, what we see is that things come and they go, they rise and they pass, they just go through. And that's a phenomenally powerful state to sit in, to be able to see our whole inner landscape with respect, with care, with attention, that mindfulness is, but not take any of it personally and see it as just phenomena that goes by, goes through. It's kind of like you're out for a walk and the, the leaves and the trees are kind of rustling in the wind or the wind blows by you or you know, the clouds overhead are just kind of floating by. To be able to sit still and quiet in meditation and just watch everything just kind of stream by, come and go, sets the stage for releasing the mind, for letting go deeper. And so uh, the literal uh, translation of this exercise goes something like this. Um, Here, there being sensual desire within one, a practitioner understands there is sensual desire in me. So that's just very straight mindfulness. It's no judgments, there's no criticism, there's no holding on to it, no being for or against it. Just sensual desire arise, and we just know it. This is what it is. Um, And when there is no sensual desire in one, one understands there is no sensual desire in me. So it's very useful to know the absence of these things, because the absence of being caught teaches that if we pay attention to it, it teaches us what it's like to be uncaught. It helps highlight what it's like to be caught. And if you really see the difference between that 
after a while, we get disenchanted or disinterested in being caught. It's not so interesting anymore, these sexual fantasies I'm having and sensual desire. You know, enough of that already. Um, th- and then, uh, when, uh, um, so this, here, here's this where it's uh, the... Um, the causal or conditional interpretation is uh, is done in this t- translation. Um, and one also understands how there comes to be the arising of unarisen sensual desire and how there comes to be the abandoning of arisen sensual desire and how there comes to be the future non-arising of abandoned sensual desire. It's kind of a mouthful. But uh, how it arises, how it goes away, and how it doesn't come back ever again. So that's a nice thing if you can do that. And that has to do with the conditions, the causes, and all that. But the literal translation is something like this. Um, um, one understands... Um, so it's something like... I have better from memory rather than... As for the sensual desire that has not yet arisen, that has not arisen, one sees it's arising, one understands it's arising. As for the sensual desire that has arisen, one sees it's going away, it's fading away. So one is conditional and one is, has to do with impermanence. And, um, so, and that's what I wanted to emphasize today, the deep insight that we're looking for in mindfulness practice is an insight into impermanence, into the changing nature of the phenomena that we can't see very clearly if we take things personally, if we react to things, if we're judging things, if we have preferences about things, if we try to fix things. Um, what we're looking for in mindfulness meditation is the ability to sit on that um, you know, rock in the river and just let everything just stream by that comes, everything comes and goes. Everything that comes into awareness will go. And to watch that go by. But to get to that place, it's a journey to get there. And it requires tremendous stability of the mind, steadiness of the mind, where the mind is no longer drifting off in thoughts, the mind's been trained, the the wandering mind has been quieted down, and we've just settled here, here. To get to that, uh, the journey to get there is little bit like the journey of a swimmer. Repetition, over and over and over again. Come back, come back, focus, be here, see this, come back, see this. And then the strokes of the mind, the strokes of mindfulness, slowly get more refined, more particular, more exact. Um, what is weak, gets, that needs to be strong, a stronger mind, stronger concentration gets stronger. The things that are strong that shouldn't be strong, like the strength of being a preoccupation gets weaker and quiets down. And it's phenomenal, the shift that happens in the mind, in the body, in the heart, uh, as we stop being preoccupied. Uh, you know, it's kind of like, now I'm finally home. Now I'm finally myself. Everything else was kind of, just kind of, disconnected from myself. Here I'm finally connected. And in that deep connection to oneself, that's where freedom can be found. So, um, so what I said about, what I read about 
the sensual desire is true for the other hindrances as well. Uh, Ill will, uh, see it stream by, coming and going. Um, And this uh, stupor and lethargy, I love these terms. Um, And um, uh, this this is not, not tiredness, but they're rather, rather they're strategies uh, of how people respond to challenges. And so, uh, you know, people can be com- completely, you know, plenty of rest. You can see it in children really well, that uh, children can be quite rested and, you know, had a good nap and everything. And then uh, you ask them to do something. Like when I was, I was a, quite a child, maybe I was still a child. I was st- slow to grow up. <laughs> I think I was maybe 13 or so, not a child. And um, so I was given a, a weekly allowance when growing up of $10 a week. That was a lot of money back then. And, um, but I had to mow the lawn. I was so tired. <laughs> I was mowing that lawn was just like, oh, I got so tired. That was resistance, boredom, aversion. So it was uh, stupor and lethargy. So there's all kinds of, you know, so, so that makes it a little more interesting to study these hindrances if you can recognize that. What's going on in me? What are the conditions for that to bring on this? And then restlessness and regret are also very powerful things. And they sometimes are strategies of how to avoid challenges. And sometimes there are ways in which we get caught in the web of our challenges, web of our shenanigans in our mind, and we get all restless and running around. And doubt also is a fascinating way in which we sometimes avoid being committed to facing our challenges and being present for things. So these are great playgrounds of mindfulness, swimming pools of mindfulness, the five hindrances. So I'm repeating myself, but it's such an important point. if you get visited by some of these hindrances, uh, don't be discouraged. Be encouraged because this is the material you have to learn. So this is your opportunity. You can say, oh boy, I get to study my aversion. <laughs> and hopefully you do it you know, in your privacy of your own little mind so that you know, it doesn't spill over and cause harm to other people. But oh boy, I get to look at my aversion. Isn't that great? Isn't that a great attitude? As opposed to, oh, shit. <laughs> so, um, so that's probably all I wanted to say today. But we have about 10 minutes. If you want to ask any questions about this or clarification, any of it, or about the mindfulness, the instruction so far, I'd be happy to hear what your questions are. Can it be heard? Thanks. You combined uh, regret and restlessness, so I was wondering why it doesn't go together in my head. Why they're the same, or why they're combined as one? Uh, Yeah, I don't do it. It's it's the Buddha who did it, so. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, uh, yeah, I I don't have a good good idea. It's possible that we don't really know what the original should be translated in English, but... um, I understand them to be um, um, 
these these two paired ones, I think of them one as being phys- more physical and the other one being more mental. And sloth and torpor, or, or this lethargy and stupor, are forces that um, bring on the sinking mind, the mind that gets tired or sinks or kind of gets dull. Restlessness and regret is what keeps uh, it activates the mind, keeps it energized, and keeps it going. And so maybe that's that's why they're put together. There's because these two restlessness and regret, because both of them uh, keep us uh, excessively agitated. That good enough? <laughs> Thank you. During your talk, I thought you mentioned that um, you were going to share your uh, definition of dhamma. Oh, dhamma! Yes, I and said I was maybe. If you yes, want to do that? So, yes. Yeah, so, so um, on these, uh, there's five exercises in the in this section, and uh, so like with the first one I talked today is the five hindrances, and it's because the hindrances I get are are uh, are what's prominent. People talk about the hindrances. People think that the Dhamma, the word, applies to the hindrances. And so, because they're kind of mental states or mental factors, or, men, or they call these are, Dhammas are mental factors or mental, mental states or something like that. And, um, but uh, I think that, uh, I suspect that what the Dhamma is referring to here is not the five hindrances or the seven factors of awakening. It's rather uh, emphasizing the seeing of the impermanence. Because elsewhere we have places where the Buddha says, emphasize what the Dhamma is, is seeing impermanence, recognizing impermanence. That's the key key insight that uh, gets repeated throughout his teachings over and over again. And so I suspect it's the the teaching or the doctrine or the, uh, the core Dhamma here is the insight into impermanence. That's, you know, so, so in, in that sense, uh, Dhamma, you know, maybe, maybe it could be translated as insight or maybe it could be translated as uh, teachings or, you know, if we want to be really bold and reckless, we may as uh, truth. The uh, doubt, the last of the five, um, I think of that as, and I mean, I, correct me if I'm wrong, is doubting the efficacy of what we're um, trying to accomplish, or what we're doing to... Uh, to that, that's certainly one very important form of doubt. Uh, doubt that this doesn't work, uh, so the efficacy of the practice, the truth of the teachings the efficacy of me as a practitioner. These, these teachings are great. This practice works for most people, but I can't do it. I don't know if I could do it. Uh, yeah, so those are all things that work. Doubt. Uh, sometimes doubt is that, uh, uh, described as uncertainty, indecisiveness. So something that keeps us indecisive and non-committed. So I can't do this. I don't know how to do it. What am I supposed to do here? And so it manifests as indecisiveness. Whereas in practice, there has to be some decisiveness. This is what I'm doing. I'm engaged.
talk about uh, uh, coming home to yourself and your mind, seeing things, but also in Buddhism, uh, they talk about not having a self and not identifying yourself independently. So what's, what's the difference between this mind and the self that you're coming home to and the self that people don't have when they practice Buddhism? I think that um, uh, when we're so comfortable, so at peace, uh, in our physical home, uh, we might not be thinking about ourselves at all. So I think that when when there's a deep sense of uh, harmony, of peace, of well-being, uh, we've let go a lot. It, you know, we can. You know, it's, it's this kind of conventional language you say we're we're, we're at home in ourselves, but really in that state, there's no reference to self going on anymore. It just, but it just, it just kind of like if you have to say something convenient, you can say you know, at home with yourself or something. But don't take it too seriously. Don't take it as a technical dis- discuss- description. Is there another mic? Yeah. Um, so early in your talk, you were talking about the lists of things that. Um, keep us uh, caught in those things that wake us up, and the, the hindrances are one of those. One of the lists you went into in detail about the things that, that keep us caught. I was expecting meta to be in there somewhere, meta, oh. um, and as as something that would keep that that would wake us up, um, but it's not part of this discourse. And I just I'm wondering if it fits into these. It's not one of the four foundations of mindfulness. Um, how does this? How does metta interact with this? Is it separate? Is it? I think that uh, that um, what we're looking at, what we're looking for here, is the the uh, the operating system of the mind. Whereas for metta, metta is usually an object of meditation. But it's not the different factors of meditation that allow us to, to the different mental faculties that allow us to do the metta. And so, if you're doing metta meditation, loving kindness meditation, the hindrances might come into play to interfere with your ability to do that. If you're doing breath meditation, uh, the hindrances might come into play and interfere with you staying focused on the breath. You do uh, loving kindness meditation you might um, get really concentrated and the factors of awakening come up in relationship to the doing the metta. If you do breath concentration, breath meditation, the factors of awakening might arise. So these are kind of like the background operating systems in a sense, maybe. Whereas metta is the object of the meditation practice. Thanks. Kind of. Um, so with impermanence, I have a question. Do you like just watching things arise and pass away? Will that automatically give knowledge to knowledge of impermanence, or do you have to kind of note it? Oh, like this was impermanent. No, I like, see. Do you have to constantly kind of uh-huh. acknowledge that it's impermanent, or does it just happen? No, no, you, no. Because uh, what we're looking for in order to really see the arising and passing, the stream go th- passing by. Um, you, you, the mind can't be that busy. 
And so if you're constantly kind of, that's impermanent, that's impermanent, (laughs) you know, you kind of keep the mind kind of active and agitated. Just trust that uh, it'll be obvious as you you settle in, settle in. It'll become obvious. And you you sit back and watch it. Maybe this is a kind of reverse metaphor that doesn't quite work. But it's kind of like you're sitting on a riverbank and... uh, and you're there, you know, through the winter and the river is frozen. But slowly over time, the river melts and then you start seeing that it's flowing. But you're not looking for the flow. It just, you just notice that it flows. So the, the reverse metaphor means that as the mind, and the mind that's very concerned with concepts and ideas and is a little bit of a hard frozen mind, paradoxically, even though it's busy, and the mind that gets really still and soft is one that flows or can flow with things or can watch the stream go by. Something like that. Thank you. So it's almost like you, what you want to do is just let go of doing. At some, point, at some point, once you get some stable and you're more or less stabilized in the present moment, you want to let go of the doing. But if you're caught up completely and agitated, then you might want to use the labeling. And, oh, there's desire, there's aversion. There it is, yep, there it is. And that helps you free you a little bit, make some distance. But once you're really present, just just, just get out of the way. And just watch. Watch the river. Okay, and so um, there were no questions about this wonderful little story about the wisdom about delusion you you, you, you might want to you might want to consider why the great bodhisattva of wisdom couldn't get this woman out of her meditation but the bodhisattva wisdom of delusion did what is it about what is it about why is the wisdom about delusion so important and if it's important, what does that mean for you? What you should be doing? So, thank you very, very much. And <laughs>